Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This episode, we talk with Jennifer Lena about her book, Banding Together. Lena explores the developmental patterns that different musical genres take, from rap and bluegrass to death metal and South Texas polka. Why do some genres become massively popular, while others thrive only in small niches? Listen in to find out. Also, our host for the week, Sarah Loggison, recently produced a documentary for KFAI Radio on the bluegrass revival in the Twin Cities. If you enjoy this interview with Jennifer Lena, you'll probably enjoy Sarah's documentary too. You can find a link in the notes for this episode at thesocietypages.org slash office hours. of Office Hours. We're here with Jen Lena talking about her new book, Banding Together. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. And so I kind of wanted to get started on this angle that you take in the book that there is already this sort of dominant way that we talk about music history. Um, What is this dominant approach and what does it miss? So I think anybody that's ever read a biography or an autobiography of either a musician or their fans or a whole community knows that these books tend to focus on these heroic stories, accidents, uh, serendipity, tragic events, you know, these singular personalities and events that are, um, at least the authors argue, are responsible for the direction that the community takes. Right. So um, just to name one example of many, you know, if Yoko Ono hadn't broken up the Beatles. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a sociologist looks at this and recognizes that it's a compelling story, but that it treats these events as if they take place outside of history. Right. And um, every single one of these artists and fans exists in a community, and understanding that community can help to reveal the things that are common across musical styles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the idea behind the book was to try to get to the heart of what it means to think about music as a community, a participatory kind of activity. Right. And across these different styles of communities, what different, um, across different styles of music, what different things were held in common, what different features were shared across cases. Right, and what at the center of a musical community, of course, is a genre, right, and uh, that people kind of gather around. So how did you, for this project, um, come to your definition of what a genre is that a music community is built around? So let me start with the the really technical sociological definition, sure. and then let me, like, translate it to that show you what perfect. it means. <laughs> So, in the book, I define a musical genre as a system of orientations, expectations, and conventions that bind together industry, performers, critics, and fans in making what they identify as a distinctive sort of music. Mm-hmm. So, I bet that doesn't even read that well. It, <laughs> it's hard to relate in, um, you know, in conversation what a text sounds like. Right. But the reason that I use that definition, well, there are a couple of reasons, really. Uh The first is the definition is supposed to show you that genres are subject to debate, Mm -hmm. that people have active conversations about what should count as a style of music, no matter what the style of music is. 
And so any sociologist that wants to understand how music communities work has to incorporate into their very definition the fact that people will dispute who belongs in the group. Yep. The second thing that I want you to hear in the definition is that, um, that there are many different kinds of people and organizations that are involved in making genres. And this is, again, one of the places where I think biographies and autobiographies, musical histories tend to be more narrowly focused than I am. Mm -hmm. They tend to look at just the creative people or sometimes the fans. But, of course, a music community doesn't work if there aren't record stores that sell the records and um, reviewers that review the records and um, media that do stories on the scene or the people involved. So I think about a much uh, broader group of people as being involved in musical genres than, than maybe you might find in a music history. Right, right, right. And then the final thing I really want you to pay attention to in the in the definition of genre is that I am not focused on uh, a particular, how do I say this? I'm not focused on a particular style, Mm -hmm. that the definition of genre is supposed to be a sociological definition, not a musicological definition. Right. right. So let me just like quickly contrast those. Mm -hmm. A musicological definition is something like jazz is a genre or rap is a genre. Mm -hmm. What I'm actually trying to say is that there are styles of community across musical styles, and those things are genres. So I redefine genre as a type of community. Right. And these genres move through these trajectories that you go into, and I think it's the the second or third chapter of the book. And so, you know... How did you define and how did you come to this term of the trajectory? And maybe you could walk us through an example that you use in the book or any example of um, of how genres evolve. Sure. And actually, why don't I do a little bit of, um, of other kinds of lifting at the same time? Because sure. I haven't told you what those styles of genre are. Right. So I could kind of do both at the same time. So... A trajectory is a sequence of things, an array of things over time or over time and space. In this case, I'm interested in trajectories of music genres. Mm -hmm. And there are basically four music genres, four, you know, sort of simple types of community structures. So let me tell you what those are, and then I'll tell you how one style moves across them in a trajectory. Perfect. So first we start with the kind of prototypical garage band. Mm -hmm. I call them avant-garde genres. Mm -hmm. And these are small communities where people are usually not even thinking about themselves as making music. Sometimes they think they're just hanging out with their friends after school and there happen to be instruments around. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they think they're doing political action and there's musical accompaniment. Right, right. And so these avant-garde genres, from time to time, there's enough kind of momentum in the group, um, enough people have the aspiration of making music, that they transform into the second genre form, something I call scene-based music. Mm-hmm. And we know a lot about this. In fact, most people have probably participated in a music scene in their life. This mm-hmm. is like music you'd find in your community, um, right. local bands that play at local clubs and involve people that you went to high school with are in the band or are fans, you know. (laughs) Everyone can picture that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And so um, 
these local scenes, you know, there there are a lot of them around the United States and around the world. Mm-hmm. Most of them sort of wither and die without people outside the community even knowing that they exist. Yeah. But from time to time, there are sponsors that come in from the outside, usually journalists or record label executives, A&R executives, people who are talent scouts, that come along and decide that the music from this community deserves to be more popular. Right. And if a community makes that transition and becomes pop music, mm-hmm. then they've entered what I call the third genre form, industry-based music. Mm-hmm. And this is pop music in all of its glory. It's right you know, globally distributed and you can buy the outfit to look like you fit into the community at the mall and there's lingo and there are Time Magazine articles about it. It's pop music. Right. Now, in some cases, pop music, um, you know, pop music is kind of a cyclical phenomena and it fades from attention. Every Every so often there's something that sticks around. But for the most part, pop music also withers and dies. Mm hmm And in some cases, there's a fourth community that emerges. I call them traditionalists. Mm -hmm. And these folks, they form a community around preserving the music. Mm -hmm. And they're actually interested in preserving not the pop music in that style, but the earlier form, the scene-based music. Right. And so these folks are usually, you know, academics, journalists, some of the surviving performers from that earlier period. Yeah. And um, so those are the four genre forms. And there are a lot of different American styles that you may know that have gone through exactly that sequence. Right. Small to large to preservationists. Mm -hmm. Like, um, well, how about rap music? Mm -hmm. So rap music starts in Brooklyn and the South Bronx in the 70s with a bunch of teenagers who are basically throwing house parties. Mm Mm-hmm. They decide that there are a couple of things about, they're really playing what we would call disco music now, disco and R&B. Yeah. And they decide that they want to make a new kind of music that basically takes out the um, the choruses and all of the parts of the song that have lyrics and focus just on those instrumental breaks between ver- verses of mm-hmm. the song. So they figure out a technological way to extend that break, that instrumental part. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, they create a new style of music that we now call rap. Right. As soon as they start playing it in the local clubs and there are small record labels that are recording it, then we have a scene-based genre. Mm -hmm. Very soon after that, we get um, the first set of recordings from Rick Rubin and... Um, the Def Jam label, and we begin to have rap as pop music in mm-hmm. the form of the Beastie Boys and Run DMC. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, there's a huge industry of preservationists, yeah. these traditional genre people who are, well, like myself, mm-hmm. writing books about it, reissuing albums, right. having concert tours. Yeah. You know, it's it was so great when I was reading the book, and I think a lot of people would agree with me that not only are these these genres, you know, you think about the music, but you, it's a very visual kind of visceral experience thinking about, you know, how these things evolve and all the people coming together and sort of the ebb and the flow of it. And and it um it's very uh, intuitive, and I really appreciate the way that you're able to take something that maybe just seems intuitive and then actually break it down into 
these these discrete units that really um they pick out those qualities. It's 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 really fun to read it. It's it's oh, very it's relatable. Oh, nice to say. That actually that it's really nice compliment, but it also allows me to tell you the secret behind why it seems intuitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which yes. is a methodological secret actually. Yes, I did want to talk about methods, so so please tell. So let's see if I can if I can um you know, shortcut us there t- right now. So yeah. so the the book is built on the secondary analysis of autobiographies, biographies, music histories, um, some you know journalistic accounts of musical communities, and basically, well, to go back in time, what what happened was that I was doing a study, a bunch of small papers for my dissertation work on rap music, and mm-hmm. I started to notice the pattern that I just described to you, that yeah. the, the community went from sort of small to medium-sized to large to then preservationist. Yeah. And I had a mentor at the time who was really interested in both jazz and country music, and we got to talking about the similarities. Mm-hmm. And so this instinct that there was something sociologically common across these three different cases, which they seem really different when you think about it. Like, oh, of course. Bebop jazz in the 50s and <laughs> yeah. country music starting in the 30s and then, you know, rap music in the 70s. Yeah. So what we did is basically we decided we would do a broad survey of 20th century popular music to mm-hmm. see if our instinct was true, if we mm-hmm. could empirically support this pattern that we thought was there. Now, at the beginning, we didn't have four genre forms. We had five and... Mm-hmm. We didn't exactly know what characteristics counted to make a community fit into one of those at any given point in time. But we went through, um, first in a collaborative project with him and then later on my own, over 400 of these stories about music communities looking for characteristics that they held in common or had unique attributes compared to other styles. Right, right. So that's why it seems intuitive is because it's actually all there. It's all sitting there in these hundreds of music books. And right. all it took was somebody to go through and kind of identify these patterns to reveal the structure. And then, of course, um, you talk about some genres who sort of take a different path through through these, through these music communities. Um, can you talk about those a little bit? Like, what did you do when something wasn't quite fitting with your scheme? Sure. So... There are some musical styles that just differ in some small respect, like they otherwise have the characteristics of a scene-based genre, except that um, there hadn't yet emerged a name for the style. Mm-hmm. So in every other way, they were the same, except for this one. And and that, you know, that's the kind of data that we report when we run into it, but it doesn't seem to obviate the value of the categories. It just yeah. suggests that there's some delay or there's some particular reason why one small thing is different. Right. And you, and you are usually able to explain that or at least kind of guess at why these genres uh, take their uh, slightly different path. Yeah, we try to. And a lot of them have to do with, you know, just the social context at the time, the yeah. particular community or the technology or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there were some bigger patterns of, um, I don't know if you'd call it deviation, but differences in groups of yeah. styles. Mm-hmm. And so... Basically, in the the third chapter of the book, I talk about three different factors that influence these differences. Right. In particular, I'm concerned with how it is that or why it is that particular musical styles skip one of those genre forms. Mm-hmm. 
So, for example, there are a number of different music communities that get absorbed into other communities before they grow very large. Right, right. So there are a bunch of reasons why this happens, like in particular reasons why it happens. But in general, um, we see that there are musics that disappear and become blended with others, other styles within their streams. So, for example, grunge rock. Right doesn't have its own kind of heritage organization because it just gets collapsed into rock in general. Mm -hmm. um, a second reason that we see stalled or um, skipped genre forms are because the music is really designed to appeal to a small group of people and there's no getting past that. Mm -hmm. So there are a whole bunch of niche styles like as much as we might be able to appreciate as sociologists why black metal or death metal appeal to fans, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's just not the kind of music that a lot of people are going to buy. Right. And so it doesn't matter what marketing ploy you came up with, you know, it's not going to change the size of the group that consumes it. Going back to the idea of the communities mattering more than the individual people or the, even the fans, I mean, who is in these communities and, uh, and and why should we focus on that? I think that the, I guess I would, I would not to split hairs, but I wouldn't say that the individual people don't matter. Mm -hmm. I would say that a different set of phenomena are revealed when we look at the community as a whole. Right. So in sociology, we talk about this sometimes as the sociological imagination, mm -hmm. that we are interested in individual people and their problems when they become unemployed, for example. We're concerned with the, you know, deeply personal impact that that has on them and the sometimes very unique reasons why they were fired or became unemployed. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're also interested in what goes on in society, the social problems. Yeah. And we can find that although the impact of joblessness is very serious on an individual, there are also group impacts when a whole community of people are underemployed or unemployed. Mm -hmm. And similarly, there are shared causes. So the same thing is true with music, that um, you know, the deeply personal resonance of music is not something that I want to distract from or detract from. Mm -hmm. But as a sociologist, I'm interested in how do we make music communities work Mm -hmm. How do they change over time? Almost like a garden, what kind of resources do they need to grow? What's the sunlight? What's the soil mixture that's ideal? Yeah. Um, so while there are very specific reasons that things happen to specific communities, the patterns are really strong and really remarkable. Mm -hmm. And it draws us to look at the context in which these things are produced, right? That's right. I was excited, too, that you're very... Um, open and encouraging about about areas that you didn't have room to go into in this book. Now that this book's out, um, what questions are kind of lingering for you that you'd like to dig into more? It's funny that you say that because somebody said that uh, I, I was giving away too many ideas in the book. <laughs> Not the same thing. Because <laughs> I have a section at the end of each chapter that's like, you know, if somebody wants to duplicate the research or if they want to extend it or they want to find other comparison cases and you know, the truth is, is that this was really um, the capstone experience for me of like 15 years of doing research on music. And while I'll always be interested in music, I really wanted to pivot mm -hmm. and tackle one of the issues that I raise at the end of the book, which, which actually doesn't have to do with music at all. Mm -hmm. It has to do with this argument about communities and um, 
I'm really interested in the idea that we might, whether we like music or we like food or we like fashion, mm -hmm. that we might actually have a taste for certain kinds of communities hmm. rather than a taste for certain styles of things. Yeah. So it seems like in music that there are a group of people who have a taste for scene-based music. They really can't tolerate or don't like pop music, and they're not interested in a bunch of old fogies sitting around talking <laughs> about old times. Right. And they're also not, you know, they're also not avant-gardists. They're also not, you know, interested in building their own instruments. Right. And so that's my intuition is that we can, as sociologists, start to think about having a taste for a certain kind of community. Mm-hmm. And so I'm in the process of designing a study to see if that's the case. You know, I like that because it really gets, it, it connects the individual to the social context in a way because it's, you're sort of saying that, you know, we have a taste or something inherent maybe that we can't even ourselves identify that attracts us to something. And maybe the type of the music or the type of food or the activity um, is part of that, but that might not be what, what kind of sucks you in in the first place. Yeah, it also grows out of sociologists know that Americans and actually people across the globe increasingly have, they report that they have a taste for, a preference for, a huge variety of different things. So we used to find in the middle of the century that Americans who were college educated, when we presented them with a list of musical styles right. and asked them what they like, they would click off one or two. They'd usually say classical and opera. Yeah. But if you do the same thing today with college graduates today, they, they click off everything, bluegrass, <laughs> you know, rap music. And, and so sociologists, we've just realized that this phenomena is going on and we're trying to figure out some of the reasons for it. And yeah. one of the most, you know, and, and of course, like the, the change in our society, the loosening of bonds, the diversification of people who are in the elite and who get to go to college, you know, these are reasonable yeah. explanations. Mm -hmm. But we need a different set of cultural theories or ideas about um, how people make choices within those categories. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, is that the person who, I just moved from Tennessee, the person who is a working class person in Tennessee and listens to country music mm -hmm. buys different albums than the college educated Barnard College graduate who listens to country music. They're making distinctions. It's just not at the level of whether they like country music or not. I'm wondering what your take on, on digital technology has to do with Taste. I mean, do you think that there's because there's a wider or maybe an easier way to access different things that that is accelerating this or diversifying people's experiences? Or do you think it's still sort of this intrinsic thing and it kind of doesn't matter what form the media or the music is coming towards people? I guess my 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 umbrella default explanation is that your local everyday interactions are more significant yeah. in forming your tastes, preferences, and habits than um, episodic interactions mm -hmm. like you have online. There's, a, there's an interesting back and forth right now about whether um, social media are making us, are impacting our social capital in any way. And I mm -hmm. think the really persuasive evidence is that our use of social media can magnify our offline habits, yeah. but they don't transform them in fundamental ways. So if you're social online, you're social offline and so mm -hmm. forth. But I think that, but you asked, your question was sort of double barrel because you asked both about kind and degree. And yeah. I think that like the degree thing, I, people 
do tend to get exposed to more and more different kinds of music now. It's as much a function of the shift of music sales towards singles as it is the digital format yeah. itself. But, I, you know, the truth is, is that we've just now gotten a couple of surveys that will allow us to examine in detail what the impact of online media has on something called taste. We really don't know the answer yet. Mm. More future research. I like yeah, <laughs> basically, basically. And I think that, you know, a colleague of mine, Omar Lazardo, is doing some really interesting stuff with this data. There's okay. a, a couple of good projects coming out of Esther Hargitay and her collaborators mm -hmm. and Paul DiMaggio and his collaborators. Mm -hmm. So hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll have a lot of good sociology on it. Just to remind everybody, the book is called Banding Together, and I found online that there is a Spotify playlist. There is. Okay, I, good. I, I put together eight hours of music that represents, oh, awesome. yes, I know it's a lot, you don't have to listen to it. <laughs> um, it represents the kind of scope of the different musical styles, um, so everything from, I found some early New Orleans jazz stuff that was up on Spotify, and um, also some contemporary um, uh, you know, electronic styles Great. and everything in between. So if you want to access it, um, download the Spotify um, application mm -hmm. and in the search window at the top, you'll have the ability to type in the following text, Spotify colon user colon Lena JC, L-E-N-A-J-C. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time to walk through the book a bit and, um, and discuss it with us. I, I did really enjoy reading it. It's um, it's the kind of book that makes you excited about the discipline. Oh, that's very nice. Now, let me ask you a question. Sure. One of the things that you um, asked me that we never got to, and mm -hmm. it, it's really a better question for you than it is for me, Sure. is what do you think the reaction will be um, from musicians and non-sociologists who are interested in music? It's funny you say that, because I, I posted your webpage on my Facebook page, and my social network at this point in my life is many more musicians than sociologists. <laughs> and and I, I was out and um, I had your book and, and I was at a show and we were, it was a, a scene-based genre show. <laughs> and uh, what we're talking about, this thing I had posted and I pulled out the chart that you had. And it was so interesting to watch my friends giggle because um, a lot of them are involved in this bluegrass revival scene. And they were reading down the, the traditionalists column. And they were kind of laughing to themselves because they could, they could see it because they live that because there's this kind of tension between like the new kids and the old school people, right? Yeah. And, um, but then it kind of turned into this like, you really go to school for this? This, is, this exists? <laughs> so, you know, they're always a little confused on what I'm doing. But it was, it was a nice bridge because, um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of times they think I, I – sociologists study a lot of really – heavy stuff and, and things that maybe they couldn't relate to, but um, I, I think the reception's good, so it's, I'll, uh, I'll send you more reviews as they come in. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I would say that the, my experience is, um, uh, you know, I would say that there are a group of people who are just disinterested in um, making a study of music mm -hmm. and, you know, who are practicing musicians, like it's the uh, just get out there and do it kind mm -hmm, of people. Mm-hmm. And then I would say that there are folks that dispute, you know, single examples. And I keep having to say, like, well, it's just an analysis of what's written. Like, if you think the history that's written is wrong, then you should go write a new should history. write a history. Yeah. No, no, that's true. That's a good way to think about it. Um, and I think also there are people who see it as, I mean, m my um, 
my optimistic take on it is that musicians could use it the way that they already use music history, like a recipe book. Yeah, you know, there's some interesting stuff in the book about how some of these genres, you know, we shouldn't forget that the, the people, the actors within these communities are learning from other communities. They've seen what, you know, maybe has happened to their avant-garde genre that they their friends were involved with a long time ago and it, and it can kind of um, feed into how they approach their art and their craft so that would be an interesting thing to, to talk to people about mm-hmm. well thank you very much I thank you thanks for listening Again, don't forget to head over to the societypages.org slash office hours to find a link to Sarah's documentary, which looks at the bluegrass resurgence in the Twin Cities, what it means for musicians and fans, and the divide between purists and progressives. See you soon.